This is reaction. Movements, moments, and monsters of the reactionary right. Episode 10. The Business Plot, Part 1. Old Gimlet Eye. At the tender age of 16, Smedley Darlington Butler gave his mother an ultimatum. Either she take him to the Marine Corps headquarters in Washington and give him permission to enlist, or he would hire a man to say he was his father and sail off to some far-off regiment under a new name. Thankfully, she agreed, or we might never know the fantastic name of Major General Smedley Darlington Butler. It was shortly after the destruction of the USS Maine, in February of 1898, and young Smedley was surrounded by newly enlisted men marching off to war, chanting, Remember the Maine! To hell with Spain! The sinking of the Maine was the catalyst for the Spanish-American War, in which the U.S. intervened on behalf of Cuban revolutionaries who wanted independence from their Spanish overlords. Of course, now we know that the explosion of the Maine was likely caused by an accidental coal fire, not an attack from Spanish ships, and that the U.S. was more concerned with protecting their economic interests in the Caribbean than it was with liberating the Cuban people. Regardless, Smedley Butler was excited to be a part of the adventure and to do something brave and noble on behalf of his country and the oppressed people of Cuba. And the fact that in 1898 he imagined himself marching off to war in the name of democracy and freedom, when really he was just a cog in an economic colonial machine, well, that would be an omen of what lay ahead for him. Despite coming from a pacifist Quaker family, Butler truly loved the soldier's life. And he was an extremely distinguished Marine. He fought in at least 12 battles, beginning with the Spanish-American War, then the Philippine-American War, the Boxer Rebellion, the so-called Banana Wars, the Mexican Revolution, and World War I. He received 16 medals over the course of his 33 years in the Marines, including two medals of honor, which not a lot of people get. In 1918, while he was stationed at a debarkation center in France, he was promoted to the rank of brigadier general. He was only 37, the youngest Marine to ever achieve that rank. Unfortunately for Butler, the promotion came with a catch. Rather than leading his men into battle, which he had been desperately asking the top brass for since the start of the Great War, he was put in charge of the awful little mud pit that he was already stationed in. Camp Pontenison was well known for its horrible conditions, and none of the officers who had tried to get it into shape before him had had much success. This was all Smedley's fault, really. He had proved himself to be such a good administrator when he was stationed in Haiti and later Quantico that he seemed like the perfect man for the job. And it turned out he was. He made it a model military camp. But he did so in the same way that he'd succeeded in so many other postings that he'd had over the years. He defied regulations and inspired profound loyalty in the men under his command. At Pontenison, he doubled food rations, issued more blankets to the freezing men, and raided a trench that was no longer in use for its duckboard, which is sort of like pallets, so that the men weren't sleeping in the mud. One private who was stationed there told a writer who'd been sent to investigate the conditions at the camp, I'd cross hell on a slat if Butler gave the word. 
It wasn't the first time he'd defied his superiors to take care of his men. Years before, in 1906, he and 50 men were stationed in Subic Bay in the Philippines, preparing the area for a possible Japanese attack. The Marines had nothing but hard tack, basically a cracker made from flour and water, hash, and coffee. When they ran out of hash, the Navy supply base across the bay ignored their signals asking to be resupplied. So, Butler decided that if they wouldn't bring the food to them, he would go and take it himself. On a small Philippine outrigger, Butler and two volunteers set out to cross the bay. They barely made it there alive when a typhoon ripped away their sail, but finally they landed at the Navy tugboat and arranged to have beef and vegetables taken to the detachment. The men stationed back at the camp welcomed Butler as a hero. The officers, who were undermined by his actions, did not. They had a medical survey declared that Butler was showing signs of a nervous breakdown. What kind of madman goes out in a typhoon for meat and vegetables? The kind who's been eating hardtack for too long. And Butler was ordered to return home for rest. Butler was beloved by the men under his command for a lot of reasons. He never gave an order to do something that he wouldn't do himself right along with them, never expected them to bow and curtsy for him, even once he was a major general, and he wasn't afraid to stand up to his superiors in defense of his men. Butler himself had been injured many times in battle, including a bullet wound in the leg and a life-threatening bout of malaria that he contracted while he was stationed in Nicaragua. The disease made his eyes so bloodshot and unsettling that he picked up a new nickname, Old Gimlet Eye. See, at the time, beverages with quinine were a common treatment to ward off malaria, and soldiers would mix it with gin and other things like limeade to make it more palatable. So, gin and limeade is your classic gimlet cocktail, and add that to the unnerving, bloodshot, piercing eyes Butler had, and you get Old Gimlet Eye. The name stuck and would be used for the rest of his life, which he very nearly lost to the infection. So Smedley Butler knew exactly what his men were putting on the line, supposedly in defense of their country, though more and more he wondered if that was truly the case. And he wasn't afraid to come to their defense when higher-ups bullied them around. Once, in Camp Pontenizen, a general making a surprise inspection found some wastefulness in a mess hall and chewed out a lieutenant. When he heard about it, Butler called the army chief of staff and told him, If the general has any complaint with the camp, tell him to pick on me and not on a young lieutenant who is doing his level best. This kind of insubordination made him a lot of enemies in the upper echelons of the Navy, which he would pay for later, and gave him a reputation just generally as a rabble-rouser and a troublemaker. He made sure to live up to that reputation, even after retiring from the Marines. Butler started his military career as a bright-eyed and bushy-tailed kid, thrilled to be adventuring around the world and putting himself in danger on behalf of the country that he loved. But over the course of his many campaigns, especially those in the Banana Wars, he became more and more skeptical about the Marines' role in American foreign policy. The Banana Wars refers to the series of occupations and interventions made by the U.S. in Central America and the Caribbean in the early 20th century. The name comes from the fact that most of these interventions were made on behalf of American fruit companies. The military would invade a country and make a bunch of promises to improve infrastructure and bring political stability, 
by propping up their preferred government officials, and in exchange, American corporations would be granted sweetheart deals on land for setting up tobacco, cacao, sugar, and, of course, banana plantations. This was also the era of President Taft's dollar diplomacy, when American financiers were encouraged to pump money into countries that the U.S. had deemed unstable, giving the U.S. more direct control over their economies. These interventions were incredibly lucrative for American commercial interests and incredibly damaging to the people who lived in the countries that we treated like pieces on a chessboard. We'll do a whole series on the Banana Wars sometime in the future, but for now it's relevant because these military interventions were a huge radicalizing experience for Smedley Butler. This was especially true after the Marines were assigned to rig elections in Nicaragua to ensure that the U.S.-backed President Adolfo Diaz stayed in power. Butler personally played an important role in the rigging. He ordered his men to canvas the district and find 400 Nicaraguans who were sure to vote for Diaz. They were given five minutes' notice that polls were about to open, then they were lined up, and two hours later, once they had all voted, the polls were closed. No one else was informed that voting was even taking place. In a letter to his wife Ethel, he wrote, Today, Nicaragua has enjoyed a fine, free election with only one candidate being allowed to run, President Adolfo Diaz, who was unanimously elected. In order that this happy event might be pulled off without a hitch and to the entire satisfaction of our State Department, we patrolled all the towns to prevent disorders. And, of course, there were none. Yes, Medley was a big fan of sarcasm and had a very dry wit. Everywhere he served, Butler had a great love of the native peoples. When his fellow soldiers would degrade the local populations, calling them names and, in some instances, committing violence against them, Butler's stomach turned. Once he was promoted to a leadership position, he made sure that kind of behavior was never tolerated under his command. Though he loved going into battle, much of the work assigned to him while abroad was the infrastructural development that I mentioned earlier. Even though he knew that the roads and canals that he built were intended to benefit big business more so than the locals, Butler figured that if he had to participate in unjust occupations of foreign countries, the least he could do was give them a few decent roads to travel on. While stationed in Haiti, he helped to establish a postal service, a school system, a telegraph network, a hospital in Port-au-Prince, 500 miles of roads, and the restoration of several lighthouses. Later, he wrote, I was and have been ever since very fond of the Haitian people, and it was my ambition to make Haiti a first-class black man's country. While he was stationed in Tianjin, China, Butler was so beloved by the people that they awarded him an umbrella of 10,000 blessings. He had rebuilt a key bridge that had washed out, one used by the local peasants to bring their crops to market. Rebuilding the bridge was a huge project, work that the peasants living in the village had neither the money nor the workers to complete on their own. The Umbrella of Ten Thousand Blessings was an enormous honor, and had never before been awarded to a foreigner. It was presented to him alongside two banners. The first read, The Chinese love General Butler as they love China. The second, General Butler loves China as he loves America. Just 28 years earlier, in 1900, Butler and his Marines had been there to suppress the Boxer Rebellion. And the very people who were awarding his first 
and then later his second blessings umbrella, were the same ones who had shot at him and his men. It was this combined love for the people in foreign lands that he occupied, and for his fellow soldiers whom he fought alongside of and watched die, that led to his anti-imperialist convictions later in life. And by the time he retired in 1931, at the relatively young age of 50, he had made an enemy out of practically every higher up in the Navy and in much of the government especially when he dared to criticize the Italian dictator Benito Mussolini. He was giving a speech before a charity club on the topic of disarmament. As a military man turned pacifist, he very much wanted the nations of the world to disarm, but he said the mad dog nations would never agree to it, or if they did, they would never abide by it. Then he said this. A friend of mine said he had a ride in a new automobile with Mussolini a car with an armored nose that could knock over fences and slip under barbed wire. He said that they drove through the country and towns at 70 miles per hour. They ran over a child, and my friend screamed. Mussolini said that he shouldn't do that, that it was only one life, and the affairs of the state could not be stopped by one life. How can you talk disarmament with a man like that? What Smedley Butler didn't know was that an Italian diplomat happened to be in the audience. He reported the remarks to the Italian ambassador, who filed an official complaint with the State Department. Butler was an active-duty, high-ranking officer dressed in full uniform, smearing the head of state of a friendly power. He was placed under arrest to await court-martial. Many in the Marines believed that this was just the opportunity the top brass had been waiting for to get Butler out of their hair. But the backlash was enormous. Rank-and-file soldiers flooded Quantico and the White House with letters. The governor of New York, a guy named Franklin Delano Roosevelt, volunteered to testify on behalf of Butler at his trial. It was so embarrassing to the State Department and the Navy that eventually the whole thing was dropped and Butler was released no trial necessary. Shortly after his release, the press reported that a journalist named Cornelius Vanderbilt said he was the one who told Smedley Butler the story about Mussolini and his car, and he had a correction to make. After they'd run over the child, Vanderbilt looked back, horrified by the thing. Never look back, Mr. Vanderbilt. Always look ahead in life, El Duce told him. Smedley retired later that year and devoted his time to helping soldiers and veterans, he went on speaking tours all around the country, and wrote for whatever publication would have him. He didn't pull any punches, either. In 1935, he wrote for the progressive magazine Common Sense, I spent 33 years and four months in active service as a member of the country's most agile military force, the Marine Corps. I served in all commissioned ranks from a second lieutenant to a major general. And during that period, I spent most of my time being a high-class muscle man for big business, for Wall Street and for the bankers. In short, I was a racketeer for capitalism. Thus, I helped make Mexico, and especially Tampico, safe for American oil interests in 1914. I helped make Haiti and Cuba a decent place for the National City Bank boys to collect revenues in. 
I helped purify Nicaragua for the International Banking House of Brown Brothers in 1909 to 1912. I brought light to the Dominican Republic for American sugar interests in 1916. During those years, I had, as the boys in the back room would say, a swell racket. I was rewarded with honors, medals, promotion. Looking back on it, I feel I might have given Al Capone a few hints. The best he could do was operate his racket in three city districts. We Marines operated on three continents. One of his most fiery and popular speeches was called War is a Racket, and he published it as a short book in 1935. It's really good, and you can hear the whole thing for as little as a dollar at patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. And Butler especially liked speaking for the Veterans of Foreign Wars, the VFW, which was the only major veterans group he really trusted. He had a particular distaste for the American Legion, which he felt was just a front for big business interests, not an organization that cared at all about veterans, little more than a strike-breaking outfit. It probably didn't help that one national commander of the Legion, Ralph O'Neill, had presented the Italian ambassador who had snitched on Butler with a resolution praising Mussolini, which had been passed by the National Executive Committee. Butler was always in demand as a speaker, though, so it was no real surprise when he received a call from a legionnaire asking if he would be willing to speak to two representatives of the organization. They were veterans, he'd said, and they had an urgent matter to speak with him about. So, on July 1st, 1933, two men pulled up Smedley Butler's driveway in a Packard limousine, driven by a chauffeur. They were dressed in fine clothes, and he was immediately suspicious. This is the Great Depression. You don't find a lot of well-dressed veterans being driven around in limousines. The men introduced themselves as Bill Doyle and Gerald C. McGuire. But please, call him Jerry. Jerry McGuire. A lot of good names in this series. Butler led the men into his study, where McGuire did most of the talking, telling Butler that he was also a Marine veteran, and that a combat wound had left him with a silver plate in his head. After a rambling and vague conversation, McGuire finally got to the point and told him that they were there on behalf of a group of legionnaires who were displeased with the organization's current leadership, that it wasn't addressing the needs of rank-and-file veterans, and that the next Legion convention in Chicago was the perfect opportunity to unseat them. Now, Butler didn't like the Legion, but he wasn't particularly interested in getting involved in their internal politics. And besides, he hadn't even been invited to the convention. But not to worry, McGuire told him. He had a plan. See, McGuire was the chairman of the Distinguished Guest Committee and had suggested to the Legion National Commander that they put Butler on the list of guests for the next convention. The commander agreed and took the list to the White House for approval. But, according to McGuire, President Roosevelt had personally objected. He wasn't sure of the reason. No matter, though, McGuire had another plan. But this confused Butler. He had escorted Roosevelt around on his trip to Haiti years ago, and they seemed to like each other plenty then. Roosevelt had offered to speak on his behalf at his court-martial just two years earlier. Smedley had even campaigned for him in a Republicans for Roosevelt drive a few months ago. He couldn't think of any reason why the president would be displeased with him, or even why the Legion was getting White House approval for a list of speakers. Were they trying to raise his hackles? And if so, why? 
Combined with their fancy garb, their limousine, and their strange behavior, Butler was very suspicious, but also very curious to find out where they were going with all this. McGuire's plan was to get Smedley set up as the delegate from Hawaii. That way, he'd be able to speak at the convention. But Butler told him that while he didn't have any love for Legion leadership, he was not from Hawaii, and he was not going to pretend to be from Hawaii, and he wasn't going to the convention without a proper invitation. Doyle and McGuire were disappointed, but they asked if they could come back and speak with him again in a few weeks. He said yes, and a month later, Doyle and McGuire were back. This time they had a new plan. Butler would get a few hundred legionnaires together and get them on a special train to the convention in Chicago. They'd all be scattered throughout the audience, and when Butler showed up in the spectators' gallery, all the men would jump to their feet and cheer, calling for a speech. Then they'd have no choice but to invite Butler to speak before the convention. And what's this speech? he asked. McGuire took some folded sheets of paper out of his pocket and gave them to Butler, which he set aside to read later. How exactly were these 300 legionnaires supposed to get to Chicago by train? It would cost at least $150 per man for that kind of trip. Well, McGuire assured him that all the men's expenses would be paid for. Butler then demanded proof. McGuire pulled out a thick bank book and, without showing him the name on the account, showed him two recent deposits one for $42,000 and another for $64,000. And he assured him there was plenty more where that came from. This was the last straw for Butler. Veterans simply didn't have that kind of money. If $100,000 was being invested in some scheme involving veterans, he wanted nothing to do with it. But he didn't say that. See, Butler wanted to know as much about this scheme as he possibly could. For 30 years, he had seen soldiers misused by business interests, and this sounded like more of the same. And he had a platform, after all. If he could uncover something unsavory, something important, he felt like it was his responsibility to do so. So, he told McGuire and Doyle that he was interested in the plan, but he needed time to think it over and to read the speech they'd given him. Once McGuire and Doyle were gone, Butler turned back to the folded sheets of paper they had left, the speech he was supposed to give to the American Legion. And now, reading through it, he was even more confused than before. The Legion was supposed to be an organization that advocated for veterans. If these men, and whoever was giving them $100,000, wanted to overturn the leadership so that it would better represent veterans, then why on earth did they want Smedley Butler to come and give a speech about the gold standard? Thanks for listening to this episode of Reaction. If you like the show, please rate and review it, and consider supporting my work by visiting patreon.com slash reactionpodcast. There you can find all the episode scripts, as well as bonus audio content that supplements the main episodes. Follow the show on Twitter at Reaction Podcast for episode updates and commentary on current events. Send your questions or feedback to reactionpod at gmail.com. This show is produced by me, Brittany Gill. Until next time. <laughs>